3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. i us be with my friends. I'm going to try and make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If we're really headed for a recession, like most money managers seem to believe, And as I have been explaining to investing club members, we have to change what we own, including on days like today, where the Dow slipped 100 points, S&P shed 0.67%, NASDAQ declined 0.85%. After two good days for the bulls, we're right back in the bear porch. Yet something caught me really steamed today. Really steamed. The street, meaning the collective people of research, talent, is approaching this gut-wrenching moment with an incredibly two-faced attitude. What do I mean by that? On the one hand, the sell-side analysts who cover individual stocks keep pushing richly valued companies, including many unprofitable ones. On the other hand, the top-down research directors focus on the broader economy. They want you to know that a recession's coming, so you should avoid that exact type of stock, like the plague.
4: The house of pain.
3: Meanwhile, the stocks that historically hold up best in recessions have been lost in the shuffle, namely the highly qualified, qualified, the high quality, well-capitalized companies with good balance sheets, big buybacks, meaningful dividends like the ones I've been recommending here and buying from my travel trust, almost all of which are household names. That's why we need to explore this by really bizarre dichotomy where the giant brokerage apparatus keeps pushing the exact stocks to get crushed in the recession that they themselves are predicting. How do we explain that? Are these analysts just uh, out of their minds? Are they being drugged? No, there's actually a straightforward explanation. First, even as the stock market peaked a little less than a year ago, the brokerage houses that pumped out expensive IPOs and sold them as great growth vehicles don't seem to understand that their era is over. (gasps) At the same time, the doyens who make the top-down calls at the same firm's you seem to get it, at least for the most part. They know the Fed will raise rates aggressively to stamp out inflation with dire consequences for the stock market. Now, see, the two views are very much at odds. And I'm afraid you're going to get hurt. What do the chief strategists see that the individual analysts don't? They know that every time the Fed raises rates, every time, earnings estimates for 2023 have to go down. <laughs> See, they're in charge of trying to figure out the estimates and what they think big fund managers should pay for those earnings. They recognize that days like today where interest rates go up, raise the odds for recession, and in recession, the earnings estimates are heading lower. They know this because every day rates go higher like today, stocks give up their gains. Now, there is always hope. The top-down directors uh, can't be sure that rates will keep marching higher. You never know when we'll get some data that's weak enough for the Federal Reserve officials to start talking about how the need to pause the relentless rate hikes. is upon them. If that happens, the beaten-down growth stocks will indeed come roaring back. You don't want to be caught with your pants down. And the brokerage firms don't want to give up the opportunity to capture those moves. And that I don't blame. But I am less sanguine. We know all sorts of commodity costs are coming down, but that's not enough. What's not coming down is the stuff the Fed really cares about now. WFH, meaning wages, food, and housing, not work from home. As long as there's no dent in those three, the Fed will hold the line on the need for aggressive rate hikes. We got a bunch of officials saying it just today. Every time they talk about how inflation keeps raging, rates go up almost in lockstep. Then when rates go up, earnings estimates for the S&P 500 have to go down. It is becoming a vicious cycle lower. (laughs) Now let's switch back to the individual annals. Until this year, we had a remarkable number of IPOs and SPACs that were created to take advantage of this booming market and low interest rates. We got a ridiculous number of electric vehicle plays, often because Tesla was such a big hit. What can you do with them now that even Tesla feeling some pain with the stock down meaningfully after hours because the company missed top-line estimates, even as it also beat earnings expectations for the eighth straight quarter? Not long ago, this was the type of quarter that would have sent Tesla's stocks screaming higher. Now, our instinct is to look for something that's wrong with report, like in this case, maybe the chance that Elon Musk might have to sell uh, some shares to pay for his pricey Twitter acquisition. The brokers created large numbers of financial tech stocks because of the success of Square and a bunch of point of sale businesses. They raised money for a monster amount of enterprise software plays, an imitation of Salesforce.com Workday ServiceNow. Those are the faves of the big paying client venture capital firms. They backed subscription retail outfits and niche internet businesses. They dreamed up biotech and drug companies that the market lapped up because big pharma kept acquiring them. And, of course, they created all sorts of mini fangs because the real fangs made so much money for shareholders. I'm talking Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, and let's throw in Microsoft for the heck of it. But the one thing the brokers didn't do was care if these companies were money losers. They didn't care. That they weren't profitable. They didn't need to worry because once they came public, their stocks would never go higher. And they could just sell more shares to raise the money if they ever really needed it. They should have cared though. Because as they were doing this, the Fed decided enough was enough. They took away the punch bowl with an aggressive series of rate hikes in order to tame inflation, and the stocks went down, not up. Spoiled the whole story. Now, you have to understand the way Wall Street works. Research is a small part of the pie for the brokers. They make a lot more money by bringing new companies public. IPOs are a huge business for them. But that spigot closed, and the spigot for follow-on offerings is closed, too. Now these new companies are running out of money, and I believe that they will soon be in dire straits if inflation doesn't slow down because they can't do offerings. The analysts at the brokerage houses, though, the analysts, this is the problem. You see, they don't want to accept what I just told you. They just heedlessly keep promoting these kinds of stocks. I know they're not supposed to operate like this anymore. The analysts are independent, but I can't come up with more reasonable explanation. Either they're trying to juice the investment banking side of the business or they're just useful idiots or maybe a combination of the two. Maybe they're just cockeyed optimists, though, who are costing everyone fortunes. What bothers me is that we know which stocks do best in an environment where we have a recession and raw costs come down. But prices hold up for many businesses. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Procter & Gamble, they reported today. They talked about how they have billions and billions of dollars of cost inflation. If the Fed wins its battle against inflation, those costs will go down. And if they can hold the line on pricing at the same time, their earnings will soar. By the way, we do own Procter for the Chapel Trust. Big position. Because this is what historically works going into a bad economy, and I have been through many periods of going into a bad economy. We heard the same thing yesterday with J&J, and then last week with PepsiCo. I bet we get the same thing with Bristol-Myers, Coca-Cola, Eli Lilly. But those are state-old companies that don't make the investment banking arms much money, don't have a lot of sponsorship anymore, unless those companies decide to make some acquisitions or break themselves up like j j So we have this terrible conundrum where the analysts keep promoting the money losers, even as the research directors warn and tell you to stay away, because these are going to be gutted as the economy slows down. Meanwhile, nobody's championing what actually works. These old-line consumer packaged goods names that we all know with high yields, big buybacks, real pricing power. When I went through Procter's quarter last night, they talked, this morning, they talked about $3.9 billion in AFRA tax headwinds. $3.9 billion. I bet those costs would be reduced significantly in a recession. At the same time, Procter's got brand power. They rarely lose business to trade down competitors, even in a recession. They also have an amazing research and development arm, along with some very sophisticated targeting advertising. But Procter & Gamble is not going to bring much business to an investment bank. I'm not surprised it gets overlooked. You know, for a full year, I have railed against the richly valued money losing companies. I reiterate that stance today. I just wish the brokerage houses would get the memo. They really should know better. Bottom line. I want to chalk this up to hope, not selfishness. But when you get an amazing quarter from P&G and so many other old line consumer packaged goods companies and drug stocks with terrific balance sheets and good yields, yet nobody cares. Well, I'll tell you something. It tries my patience severely. Ian in Illinois. Ian. Jimmy Chill. First time, long time. How you doing? Uh, Ian, I'm a little un tonight, but I got to do my best. What's going on?
2: That's all right. Hey, I've got several friends uh, using Dexcom, so that's what my question's about tonight. I know you said it's expensive, but diabetes is going nowhere, even in a recession. What do you think? Buy, hold, or sell? Well,
3: I, it is expensive, but I think I think the world of Dexcom, and they do have uh, the best they have the, they do have the best uh, machine. And so, therefore, if someone wants to buy it, I'm not going to be against it, but recognize that these very expensive stocks have had a very hard time in this market. All right, now listen to me. When you get an amazing quarter from Procter & Gamble like we had today, and nobody cares, well, let's just say, I'm Steve! Oh, man, Money tonight, Netflix reported a quarter that was anything but you! and I'm running through the numbers and sharing the details that you need to know. Then the airline stocks have bounced off their lows. So is this just the beginning of a move to the skies? Can you really own those stocks? Maybe go into recession? I don't know. We got to take a close look at the players and Biomarine is on a mission to help millions with genetic diseases. And I'm learning more about the company's pipeline with the CEO. So stay with Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money.
0: Visibility at indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
3: Has Netflix finally gotten its crew back? I was eagerly anticipating their quarter last night because the stock had been making kind of a comeback after spending most of the year lost in the wilderness. And this time, they sure didn't disappoint. When we pulled the data for the best performers of the third quarter, remember that last week? I was shocked to see Netflix as the number two name in the NASDAQ 100 with a 34% gain during the period. Of course, before the rebound, the stock had plunged from $700 last November to $160 at its low this spring in part because the market turned against it all things growth, but also because they had experienced what I have to regard as a dramatic slowdown. You know, I like these guys. A few months ago, Netflix started rebounding from its lows, and the rebound accelerated when we started hearing talk of a new, cheaper, ad-supported subscription tier. Normally, I'm hesitant to get behind stocks that have rallied hard going into earnings because that kind of hype sets you up for failure. But this time, Netflix delivered a spectacular set of numbers that sent the stock up 13%. I expected the quarter to be a positive catalyst, but it's just not up 13% for everything. So tonight I've got to walk you through this because this is really important. I want to show you how Netflix pulled this off after being written off and left for dead earlier this year. It wasn't long ago that this stock really did look like roadkill, yet now it looks alive and well. And I think the news is terrific because I've always loved this management team, their creativity, and, of course, their products. Before we get into the comeback, you need to remember what went wrong here. And just this is the stock got hit by what I talked about all at the top of the show, the rotation out of high-growth stocks after the Fed declared war on inflation last November. Now, at its peak, the stock sold for 62 times earnings, making exactly the kind of richly valued growth name that's been totally toxic this year. Didn't help that Netflix was widely perceived as a COVID winner, something you do when you're all cooped up at home, and those things all went out of style once people felt safe going outside again. Then in January, Netflix gave us a truly horrific subscriber forecast. Talking about adding 2.5 million subs in the next quarter, when Wall Street was looking for 5.8 million, that's disappointing. The rest of the guidance was awful, too. That's the kiss of death first, stock, and it only got worse when Netflix reported a truly ugly quarter in April. Forget about adding 2.5 million subscribers. They actually lost 200,000. And then management guided for another quarter of losing eyeballs, this time predicting 2 million subscriber losses And I thought they'd be up $2.5 That was the biggest disparity I can recall in, say, modern times. After they disappointed in the spring, there was a real sense that maybe the whole Netflix narrative had fallen apart. Money managers started giving up on anything connected to streaming. We figured there was too much competition or the programming wasn't as good as it used to be. Or maybe Netflix simply reached saturation, just not enough new people to bring into the platform. Maybe there wasn't enough time in people's lives. Well, we got the next set of numbers in July. Well, they managed to beat their conservative forecast, even as they lost nearly a million subscribers. But more important, Netflix painted a much brighter picture for the third quarter, talking about a return to subscriber growth, even as the forecast was a little lighter than anticipated. Still, it was enough to get the stock bouncy again, because the company's credibility, like all COVID winners, had been being called into question. Fast forward to last night. It looks like Netflix incidentally under and overdelivered because they don't play that game. Uh, Because these numbers were fantastic, and I think they came as a surprise, perhaps even to management itself. I bet you if I got to interview them rather than the analyst who did, who does a very good job, we could really get to the bottom of what is one of the most exciting business turnaround stories I've seen in a long time. Most important, they had 2.4 million paid new subscribers uh, when Wall Street was really was only looking for a little over 1 million. That translated into a nice top line beat with nearly 6% sales growth year-over-year year, and a monster 96-cent earnings beat off a $2.14 basis. Who the heck thought they had this kind of leverage? Even better, Netflix generated $472 million in free cash flow, and it's was looking for $78 million. That's the kind of huge disparity I live for! While the company only saw a 1% increase in average revenue per membership, that would have been an 8% game without the impact of currency fluctuations. Remember, they got a big overseas business, so the strong dollar, like so many companies that we address on this show, really hurts them. Currency aside, though, Netflix is doing great in the rest of the world. They had 19% constant currency revenue growth in Asia-Pacific, 13% in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, and 19% in Latin America. While the numbers were good all over, Their paid memberships were up 23% in Asia-Pacific, and that is very, very strong, one of my favorite pieces of data. When you go through the shareholder letter, which was excellent, there is a lot to like. They mentioned some big hits in the third quarter, like uh, their Jeffrey Dahmer series uh, or the new season of Stranger Things. Management also points out that they have higher engagement than anyone else in the business, and they still stand heads and shoulders above the competition in terms of competing for your time. Netflix now accounts for 7.6% of total TV time in the United States, which was 2.6 times the amount of Amazon, next closest better, at least among the streamers. More important, management notes that while their competitors are all spending heavily to promote subscriber growth, they're likely all losing money, lots of money. Well, Netflix should have an operating profit of five to six billion this year. They've been going through a tough, tough period. Where their rivals were burning money to become more competitive, but that's unsustainable in the current environment. Here's the kicker: after, and I'm going to quote here. After a challenging first half, we believe we're on a path to reaccelerate growth. End, end quote. So, what does that reacceleration look like? Okay, Netflix guided for 4.5 million paid subscri- subscriber additions in the fourth quarter, nearly half a million higher than the analysts want. but we're looking for. But every other line came in lower than expected, which initially got me worried, but both because of the insanely strong dollar, which explains a lot, and because they shifted some expenses for the third quarter, all explained away. The company also told a good story about the new ad-supported tier, which will launch next month in 12 countries, although it'll probably be too small to move the needle anytime soon. For five minutes of advertising per hour of programming, you can get a 20 to 40% discount. Much, uh, by the way, that is much less commercial time than many were worried about. They're also taking a new approach to cracking down on account sharing. Rather than being punitive, they've gone, they're, making it, they're going to make it easier for you to shift your, net, your borrowed Netflix profile to a new account or to pay extra for adding a new member to an existing account. What really struck with me, though, what really, really got me thinking this is for real, is that management wants investors to focus less on subscribers and more on traditional metrics like sales and earnings. I think that's smart in a market that really only cares about cash flow and profitability these days. Hey, speaking of cash, Netflix talked about substantial growth in free cash flow next year, which is exactly what I wanted to hear. Then there are these intangibles. For example, co-CEO Reed Hastings and CFO Spencer Newman struck a much more humble tone in their analyst interview which they do instead of a traditional conference call while at the same time they're outlining a series of hits and soon to be hits that are astonishing in both breadth and geographic diversity. So does it make sense to circle back to Netflix if you haven't already? Look, there's, there's a reason why the stock soared 13% today with three different firms upgrading from hold to buy this morning. The business is clearly making a comeback here. And for the first time since the debacle earlier this year, they have a slate of incredibly popular new shows, just like the old days. Plus, the stock isn't too expensive relative to its newfound growth rate, trading at less than 27 times earnings here, especially since Netflix has been beating the earnings estimates pretty consistently even when their subscriber numbers were ugly. I'm betting 2023 will look a lot better than 2022. The bottom line, as much as I like Netflix here, I'm still going to tell you you can't chase it. Why? Well, this remains a very difficult market, as I said at the top of the show. But you can do this. You put it at the top of your shopping list. You wait for the next pullback. In the averages, of course, because I don't think you're going to get a big one in this one. And then you pull the trigger. Knowing how bearish this market really is, I think you're going to get your chance. Money is back after the break.
1: Coming up. A business battle at 30,000 feet? A Delta's quarter riled up a united adversary. Next.
2: You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
0: Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
3: Can we trust this newfound strength in beating down airline stocks? This is a tricky group. After a brief period early last spring where it looked like these stocks would make you a fortune thanks to the post-COVID travel boom, the airline stocks stalled out, peaking in April, then making a series of lower highs and lower lows for the next five months. Didn't seem to matter that the airlines kept reporting great numbers. Nobody wanted to touch these stocks going into a Fed-mandated slowdown. But now earnings season has rolled around, and you know what? The airlines themselves are changing the narrative. Last Thursday, Delta Air reported it was technically a top and bottom line miss, although there was so much good stuff buried underneath that the stock has been able to rally more than 11% since the quarter. Then last night, United Airlines delivered a terrific earnings beat that sent its stock up 5% today alone. You gotta ask, group changes stripes? What the heck's going on? I'm not surprised that the airlines are doing well, actually. What's surprising is this market actually seems to care. Could that mean these stocks are finally safe to own, or is this just another temporary reprieve before the whole group gets blasted out of the sky by worries about the Fed causing a recession? Before we can answer that question, you need to know why the airlines stalled uh, this spring. Wall Street was very excited about the post-COVID travel boom, but that wasn't enough. Even though the airlines had tremendous demand, we started hearing about often severe operational issues, crumbling air travel infrastructure, leading to tons of delays, canceled flights, cost the airlines millions in lost revenues. Then, as the Federal Reserve started tightening more aggressively in order to stamp out inflation, money managers figured there was no way air travel could hold up going into recession. It never has. The here is that while the current numbers are strong, airlines will face a reckoning at some point in the not-too-distant future. One last consideration here. Wall Street's reluctant to put its faith in the airline stocks because historically, this has been an awful industry. They're happy to trade the airlines, but much less willing to invest in them. I think the industry has fundamentally changed over the past decade or so thanks to a series of mergers. In the old days, there was tons of cutthroat competition and kept prices low. We definitely don't have that anymore, uh, which is bad news for anyone who wants to fly, even if it's good news for shareholders. That's why the stocks have struggled to gain traction lately. But then Delta Air reported surprisingly strong quarter last Thursday. While the headline numbers, as I mentioned, were really OK, the cadence of the quarter, how it was doing during the month, was very encouraging. Basically, the third quarter got off to a rocky start for Delta due to those operational issues I mentioned. But then they saw a meaningful pickup in travel in September. On top of that, management gave you a much higher than expected earnings forecast for the fourth quarter. Remember, we care about forecasts more than ever as their networks get closer and closer to being fully up and running again more important they had some extremely positive commentary about the level of demand for air travel they talked about business bookings improving after labor day business bookings they're now at their strongest level since the start of the pandemic listen to this from CEO Ed Bastian and I quote the travel re- recovery continues as consumer spend shifts to experiences and demand improves in corporate and international equity. he goes on quote in this environment, we expect December quarter revenue growth to accelerate versus 2019, end quote. On top of that, he talks about, and again, a quote, a meaningful step up in profitability and cash flow next year, end quote, which is exactly what Wall Street wants to hear. When Bastion went on Squawkbox last Thursday, he sounded totally bullish about demand and also made a compelling case for how Delta can get its cost down. Plus, the rebound in business and international travel is huge because those tickets are where the airlines make the big money. People are much more likely to go first class when they can uh, charge it to their employer, right? Put it all together, and it's no wonder Delta's stock has rewarded in response. Then last night, shocking. We got fantastic results from United Airlines. Their numbers were even better. United gave us a clean upside surprise. Higher than expected sales up 13% for the third quarter of 2019. 2019 and a 53-cent earnings beat off a 228 basis. These guys are printing money. The airline industry likes to track total revenue per available seat mile, basically their revenue per unit. For United, that key metric was up 25.5% versus 2019. That's the best comparison because those, uh, that's a pre-pandemic number. At the same time, their cost per available seat mile was only up 14.5% versus 2019, which is better than expected. Plus, they're now back to more than 90% capacity from pre-COVID levels, putting them a little bit ahead of Delta. Guidance? Stunning. United sees strong demand holding up in the current quarter, but they also think they can get their costs under control to the point where they're forecasting 2 to 225 of earnings per share. Analysts were looking for less than a buck. There's so much to like here. United has the most exposure to transatlantic flights. And right now, Americans are flying to Europe in droves because the dollar is so strong versus the euro. If you want to understand why United could rally almost 5% today, though, you only need to listen to what CEO Scott Kirby had to say to CNBC's Phil Lebeau on Squawk Box this morning. Listen to this.
2: Hybrid work allows every weekend to be a holiday weekend.
3: What we see in our data is there are Tons of customers who, because they're untethered from the office, can now work remotely for one or two days. And they're taking extra trips. He's talking about hybrid work creating permanently higher demand for air travel. Now, look, I don't know if I can fully buy the argument, but the fact that Kirby could have so much conviction tells you the business must be going great. Now, tomorrow morning, we're going to hear from American Airlines, although that should be less surprising because they already pre-announced terrific numbers just last Tuesday. All three major airlines are doing much better than expected. The strong travel market we heard about this spring is still very much with us. And these companies sound pretty darn optimistic about the future. And I got to say, I'm becoming a believer. So are Delta and United worth buying even after these runs? Both stocks are trading at roughly seven times next year's earnings. I like them cheap. A classic sign. Wall Street doesn't trust the numbers, though. However, Scott Kirby's right about a new normal for air travel then the estimates may actually prove to be too low. And one thing is for certain, human behavior has changed post-COVID. Travel, including travel overseas to take advantage of the strong dollar, it may make up for a more recession-resistant, may may make it a more recession-resistant group. I can't believe I just said it, but I mean it. It could be recession-resistant. Bottom line, you got to be careful when you own the airlines, meaning take profits gradually along the way, jump out of the plane if the industry starts facing real turbulence. For now, though, I think the strength here can continue which means you actually have my blessing to buy them both. Although United is clearly performing better. I need to go to Neil in New York. Neil!
4: Hi, how are you, Jim? I want to know about FedEx. It's down 40% year to date. So what should I do, hold it or sell it?
3: FedEx is very, very tough. At this point, it is down too low to sell. I'm just gonna tell you to hold it. Let's go to, uh, well, that's it. And that, oh hold it. I think the strength here can continue, which means you got my blessing to buy both United and Delta, although United's a stronger one. Watch more made money at, cleaning my exclusive with Biomarin. How is the biotech company faring in a post-pandemic world? I'm running through the latest with the company CEO. Then it's the 35th anniversary of Black Monday, and I'm giving you the takeaways that I learned myself. You'll never hear them from anybody else, believe me. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. When everybody's terrified of a recession, like I said at the top of the show, you typically want to hide your money in healthcare stocks, which are about as slowdown-proof as it gets. Right now, though, we're also worried that the government will bully big pharma because of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services we'll be able to negotiate aggressively for lower drug prices. We've got to avoid that, too. But what about one of our long-term favorites, Biomarin Pharmaceutical, which specializes in what are known as orphan drugs, treatments for rare diseases, I think this immunizes them against some of these medical... of com- uh, the rules that government's trying to do to keep prices down? These are small end markets, and there really aren't any other alternatives for these orphan drugs. This is all they have. Now, there's a reason why this stock is held up much better than the overall market, basically flat for the year. And the story could get only better now that their new hemophilia-A drug's been approved in Europe and submitted to the FDA for approval here in the United States. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with J.J. bien He's the chairman and CEO of Byron Pharmaceutical. He get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Bannon, welcome back to Mad Money.
4: Thank you, Jim. Always a pleasure to be here. Okay, <laughs> so, JJ,
3: before we go in, because it's been a while to some of this incredibly exciting news, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but orphan drug status and the special work that you do will make it less likely that big government will say, you know what, we're not going to pay for those drugs.
4: No, that, that, you're absolutely right. Obviously, uh, 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 rare disease drugs are somewhat immune uh, from uh, these new regulations on Medicare, you know, direct pricing uh, negotiations. Actually, our Medicare business is very small. Right, It's less than 3% 3, 3 of our business. And it'll be a while before any of our top drugs makes it to the top 20, top 30 of the top Medicare drugs. Now, the
3: last time we spoke, you talked about something. I said, well, if this could happen, it would be amazing, which is some of the work you're doing on hemophilia. Not only has it been amazing, but there's great news in Europe, and soon, we hope, some great news in America. So I hope you can explain, because this is an intractable disease that, that you told me that no one else would be able to do except for you, and you had it right.
4: Well, so, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, uh, as you know, a bumpy road. Uh, drug development is uh, not a straight, a straight line. But we did get approval uh, in Europe in late August. We, are, uh, we hope to be treating our first commercial patient in, uh, in Germany uh, at, the ne- at the end of this month. We just the FDA did uh, accept our filing in the U.S. Uh, last week, uh, so we have a chance to be approved at the end of March of next year, uh, or a little later in Q1 or Q2 of next year. So that's very exciting. Uh, this is transformative therapy. Uh, actually, I've, I've I've talked to a few um, hemophilia patients that have taken Roctavian, and and it has absolutely changed their lives. Uh, they're not worried about you know bleeding episodes on a regular a regular basis. Uh, they can leave. They can live a very, a very uh, close, close to a normal life. Now, well, they have some involved. people might say, well, wait a second,
3: 1.5 million euros in Germany, maybe that's 2 million to 3 million uh, in the US. The f- truth is, is that you're, I mean, I don't want to make, call it a bargain because we're talking about people's lives. But the fact is, is that these prices are not nearly as much as what this, it costs the system to take yeah. care of these people. And the system doesn't do a good job.
4: Yeah, so actually, yeah, uh, uh, oh, today, existing therapies today, the center of care, which is still um, recombinant factor injections, um, uh, is uh, on an annual basis in the U.S. Uh, is around $500,000 per year. Uh, so, and actually, some therapies, newer therapies, are even more expensive. So, so our plan is to, you know, price the drug to recoup our investment at the same time to make sure that the healthcare system, as a whole, and the patients will be saving money uh, when they use our drug. And also, we can talk about know, We're going to have uh, we payers are about to sign outcome-based agreements where we guarantee success. Right. And if the drug, if the patients need to go back to prophylactic therapy uh, later on, we will reimburse the cost of the therapy.
3: And it's important to point out that the common uh, solution, which has been used for a
4: long time, is not nearly as good as your solution. No, actually, we had a phase three trial that demonstrated you know, that our drug was more effective at controlling bleeding. Uh, and we have phase three, we have two years of data in phase three, we'll have three years of data in January, and we have... Six years of data with our phase two trial that shows with a one three hour infusion, three to four hours intravenous infusion, patients are bleed free, free of bleeding episodes for years. That's Which so isn't heard of.
3: So it really is what you said it would be, which is really It's incredible. a revolution. Yeah. Now, in the meantime, it's, uh, you've got, besides Rectavian, we just discussed, uh, you've got uh, Vo- Voxigo, yes. which is another drug that put, looks like it could have very big sales for you.
4: Yeah, so Voxigo was just approved about a year ago uh, in uh, Europe and US. Uh, it's off to a very good start. It's our best, best launch ever. We're going to, we guide it to uh, uh, revenues uh, this year around uh, $150 uh, million, 40 million, $50 million. Dollars. This is our best launch ever. I think I'm very confident based on what's happening that this will be the first biomarine drug that will pass $1 billion in revenues. Same with Roctavian, we just talked about. So we have a base business of about $2 billion. We're now profitable. We have big cash balancers. And uh, and we are in a position with those two drugs to double the revenues of the company by 2025 to you know around four billion dollars.
3: And then one other I want to mention,
4: and I want people to go
3: to the website. It's very easy. It's biomerent.com because you'll see how important this is. Is is Vimazim because this is changing people's lives, also. whose lives are frankly I think just so sad without.
4: Them. Yes, and that is our most successful drug, and indeed. Uh, uh, we're also transforming the lives of those patients. Uh, this is called uh, MPS4. Uh, so we launched the product a few years ago. And, and uh, so our base business of enzyme replacement therapy is, is still growing after many, many years about, you know, low single digits, but it's still growing and, and uh, it's uh, pretty well protected from competition for many, many years. So, so you, have, you, have a, you have a lot of downside protection with our base business and a potential significant upside with Voxogo in echolidoplasia and in hemophilia.
3: Now, I don't want to get too excited. There are some things that are very, very early, but you've got, uh, you've got something for, uh, for cardiomyopathy, hyper, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which you know I care tremendously about. When it says preclinical, that's something that's very early on, but could still be... Uh, yeah. Things go fast once you get them right, JJ.
4: No, you're right. So um, right now we are shooting for uh, filing an IND, which is allowing us to start human clinical trials in about a year or so from now. So we, hopefully if everything goes well. We will be in the clinic in the first half of 2024. This will be the biggest indication um, uh, for which a gene therapy is gonna be attempted. We're talking hundreds of thousands of patients potentially with a huge unmet need. Uh, I understand personally, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, some experience with this in your family. Uh, so we are super excited about this. Uh, still early, but uh, our pre-critical data and our uh, human in vitro data of myocytes is, uh, is very exciting. Well,
3: many people promise it, uh, in, dr- in drugs, and I tend not to even let them go on, but your record on this show of what you can deliver is extraordinary. So I want to congratulate you on what you're doing with, with hemophilia, and I wish you the best of luck with all of your other drugs. Please, go to this website. You will understand why these people—there should be no it, it restrictions on how much money— to uh, be spent on JJ Beanie's drugs by Mr. Chairman, CEO. It hey, might
1: Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire, lightning round. Next.
3: And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Dad, Time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Mark in Wisconsin. Mark.
2: Jim, I got a stock here that's out of favor, trading for north of $3 a share. I've already bought some. Uh, did I make a mistake or should I buy more? Ticker symbol is R I G. Name of the company's TransOcean.
3: TransOcean. Well, I know TransOcean very well. I think you remember it is a high-risk stock. I prefer to have something that is certainly a little bit more, um, let's say, uh, known and already being doing incredibly well, which is Albert, H T L, which is owned by Investing Club, and I think it's doing terrifically. Let's go to Dan in California, Dan.
1: Greetings from sunny Sonoma County.
3: Yes, uh, love Sonoma.
1: China reopening, consumer discretionary. I know you like Estee, La- Estee Lauder. How about this other one that has a much lower PE and a
4: much better dividend? TPR, tapestry.
3: Tapestry interesting to me. I kind of like it. I think it's an expensive stock. I think Coach is good. and I like them to come on the show. I think that's a good idea. Let's go to Robert in Pennsylvania. Robert. Hey, Jim. Yes, sir. How are you? I am doing well. How about you?
2: Good. I want your opinion on Carnival Cruise Lines.
3: I don't like Carnival. I prefer Norwegian Cruise, better balance sheet. And I think it's going to do better even if the uh, economy goes into a real tailspin. Let's go to Dave in Ohio. Dave. Mr. Kramer, how are we doing tonight? Dave, I'm doing well. How about you? hey right, man i'm hanging in there i got my raincoat i'm ready to weather this storm speaking of uh looking for high yield low volatility names uh do you like kimberly clark to out i like kimberly clark but you know for your additional p at one point point given i rather in yield i'd much rather have you be in procter and gamble which the trading if we know is not trading as well as it should. But if you read our analysis this morning, the CBC Investing Club, you will come around and agree with me. Chris in Texas. Chris. Booyah, Jim, from Dallas. Go easy on me. No, no, I I have no problem with you. It it was the uh, Eagles that roughed you up, not me. What's going on?
2: Rub it in. Um, Hey, I I would love to hear your thoughts and thank you on Boeing as a long-term position. All right. As a long
3: term position, that is really the operative term, because short term, they keep doing things wrong. Longer term, there's only two airplane companies and they're one of them, and therefore they will do fine. Let's go to Dennis in New York. Dennis. Dennis. I have a question regarding a Consumer Bank Uh, that's been pretty well, even Mr. Buffett holds a portion of this bank. Uh, but it's been since the beginning of the year. Fight. Uh, kind of breaking up. I'm so afraid. Is there a stock? I can't. Uh, uh, give me the name of the stock. Ouch. Okay, we got to go to the next one. I'm sorry, Jeff. Let's go. Oh no, Jeff in Washington. Is who I want to go to? Jeff. Jeff. <laughs> Jim. I got a nickname yes. for you, Mr. Nasdaq. Oh. Mr. Nassau, hey, well, I'm kind of the New York Stock Exchange, but Mr. Nassau, suits me, too. What's going on? Hey, Port Energy just seems to be screaming upward even faster
2: than... I S1. like Port
3: Energy. It's inexpensive. You know, my favorite right now is Pioneer PXD. Some clown downgraded a day to a cell. They should be ashamed. I need to go to Steve in Virginia. Steve. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I just want to let you know I'm, I'm a member of the investing club, and I appreciate what yes. you do for us. All right, I've been looking at. Thank you. We're doing our best. That... Trying every day. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, I've been looking at a, a company I haven't bought any shares in, but I'm thinking about it. It's somewhat speculative. It's an electric vehicle battery company. Ticker symbol QS, Quantum Skate Corporation. I'd like to have your opinion. Looking well, it's losing a lot of money. Lose a lot of money, and we do not recommend stocks that lose a lot of money on mad money. That's just the best we can do. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round.
1: Lightning Round is sponsored by TV Ameritrade. Coming up, Black Monday memories. But 1987 wasn't all bad. Stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE.
3: It's right. Halloween, you can wear a whole thing. Well, I want on. a tail, where's the I, tail? I, I took the Brioni jacket off, That that was a major concession. You know, if you need a
4: tail, you could do the back ends and put <laughs> it together. Would that be good? Give <laughs> would be a bull's <laughs> uh, well, boy. That would make me something.
1: <laughs> it all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
3: Exactly. 35 years ago today, we got hit with the mother of all crashes, Black Monday. People forget, but earlier in 1987, we had had one of the greatest rallies I can recall. S&P surging 32% from January through September. We ran up almost every single week. It was pure joy. It was giddy. For me, as a young hedge fund manager, I couldn't believe how intoxicating it all was. The rally had this incredibly surreal quality to it. It wasn't fueled by buying from Americans, whether we're talking individuals or institutions. Instead, it was driven by Japan. At that time, their market dominated the world. The Nikai was the big dog back then. We were the second fiddle. The Japanese were the marginal buyers of everything around the world. Real estate, art masterpieces, most important, our stocks. We were just alone for the ride. They did—we did their buying in the first hour, and the stocks tended to stay up there where the Japanese took them by 10:30 a.m. It got so ridiculously giddy that all we wanted to do was lock in our gates. There were these institutions that sold something called portfolio insurance, which they claimed would allow you to stop at your losses down 5%, or actually any level you chose, something you needed because the S&P was valued at 29 times earnings back then. To put that in perspective, it currently is valued at less than 17 times earnings. Of course, that 1987 bull market was indeed too good to be true. <laughs> Stocks didn't deserve to be that high, and no portfolio insurance could really stop your losses down 5 percent because these policies used S&P futures. Once the portfolio insurance kicked in, the massive wave of future selling needed to protect the insured portfolios was enough to overwhelm the whole stock market, like throwing gasoline on a fire. Now, the week before Black Monday had also been one of the worst weeks ever. The portfolio insurance chartlems were doing their best to keep up, but it all broke down and we got a crash. Dow losing 22.6 percent single session. Next thing you know, The market's looking a lot cheaper, and there were bargains galore. We just didn't know it because we assumed the crash had to be predicting something horrible about the economy. That was wrong. It was predicting nothing. The market just got too expensive once the Japanese stopped buying, and then the futures overwhelmed the common stock thanks to all that portfolio insurance. That insurance failed, and many of the firms who took it lost almost everything. But you can Google the crash of 87 until the cows come home. You'll never see any of the analysis I just gave you. Why? Because not that many people were trading at that time, and most of them weren't talking to the media. I know because I studied this period endlessly, and I couldn't believe how wrong the journalists were. I studied the next day, too, by the way, where the Dow initially got clobbered down 30 percent on a two-day basis, leading the Fed to announce it would provide all the liquidity we needed to make the market work right. Hence, Turnaround Tuesday, not discussed as often as Black Monday, often just as important. You know why I studied this period in the first place? First, I wanted ammo I could use to convince CFOs of large companies to start doing buybacks so they could take advantage of opportunities like Black Monday. Second, I wanted to expose all the nonsense I heard at the time. The bogus stories about how, why we crashed, the facts. In this case, the trajectory of stocks had nothing to do with the economy. The asset class simply failed that day. Since then, we've instituted what are known as circuit breakers, which would stop trading if we hit certain levels on the way down. Trading stops, market gathers its breath. They don't, they tend to work, but I don't really trust them because markets are still guided by fear and greed. Greed grows over time, but fear can exert its wrath in minutes. (laughs) When you look back, though, nobody seems to want to air this dirty laundry. They prefer to blame Black Monday on the dollar or interest rates or the tone of business. For those of us who lived through it, that's garbage analysis. The market failed to function. People lost billions. And that was all she wrote. Could it happen again? The authorities say no. But then again, they pretty much told you the same thing back then, too. So remember remember what happened that day and never get too complacent. The people who got blown out in 1987 were never complacent again. But then again, they didn't have any money left, so maybe it didn't matter. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts
2: now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.